I'm Jason Klom, and this is Comedy on Vinyl. Thanks, Jason. I, I like your format because I know a, a teeny little bit about a whole lot of things. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that's that's kind of my thing. I, because I host this podcast, people think I know a lot about comedy records, and I really only know what I give a crap about, if I'm honest. And, you know, that, that, that kind of happens with comedy. I feel like at some point you kind of drop off with stuff that isn't relevant to you anymore. Um you know, uh, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry that I had a collection because I used to love the uh, the comedy that came on the 33 and a third RPMs, and I had a collection of them, and I finally donated them, and yeah. that's been several years ago. We're trying to you know clear things out and and scale down because I'm at an age where we're trying to get rid of stuff, not accumulate stuff. Of course, but in retrospect, they weren't taking up a whole lot of space, and I wish I'd kept them. Uh, you know, I get that. How, how many do you think you had? Uh, maybe a half a dozen. I'd probably have more mm-hmm. than that over my lifetime, but sure. I remember getting rid of uh, of about six. Yeah. Okay. So I mean, do, uh, let's. Can we talk about what those six were? If you if you know what, sure. what all of them were, please let's let's start. There. I can remember two or three of them. One was a Bob Newhart. Uh, I loved what he could do. Uh, you know, on the single end of a telephone, you didn't hear the other end, but you he he created that imaginary uh, conversation. Yeah. Uh, Cosby was also good at that. Mm-hmm. But uh, the other one was Washington is for the Birds. That was mm-hmm. about Lyndon Johnson when he was president, Lady Bird, Linda Bird. And there's some really funny stuff on that album. I remember one in particular was a Barry Goldwater, Let Us Return to Proven Ways. And it was mm-hmm. set to music. Uh-huh. Um, the other one I remember was uh, JFK. Uh, and I can't remember what the title of that album was, but it was Vaughn Meter. Yes, the first uh, family. Yeah, who did uh, the impression of both uh, Kennedy and his brother Robert. Yeah. And uh, that, uh, that I remember is a particularly funny album. I love I, them all. It's That is a, first of all, I, I need to find Washington is for the birds. I have, because of, of my love of the first family, I've hunted down mm-hmm. as many Kennedy, Johnson, and especially Nixon. Nixon, there were over a dozen that they made for obvious reasons. Um, and But I did not know about this one until you emailed me about Washington is for the birds. And I'm trying to see who's in it because it's got a great cover. It's an American Gothic of him and Lady Bird, which of course it is. Yeah, I, uh, let's see. Um... The First Family, that was the name, because I made Mm -hmm. some notes the other day as I was thinking back on this. Yeah. The First Family, that was the Vaughn Meter one. Mm -hmm. And uh, I I loved, I remember another episode on there where uh, he's, uh, Kennedy's holding a news conference. Mm -hmm. And he's opening it up for questions. And Jackie, (laughs) uh, who was, of course, very sophisticated and spoke several languages. And uh, he called on her. And you hear this very soft very identifiable Jackie Kennedy voice, uh, starting to ask a question in French. And <laughs> he says, Jackie, English, please. <laughs> but uh, yeah, that was one that I liked a lot. And the birds, let's see. I think Lyndon Johnson did one that was very funny and I can't remember the name of it. I remember Barry Goldwater's Return to Proven Ways. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. How about you don't won't have Nixon to kick around anymore? I think that might have been on that same album. Okay, okay. Uh, oh yeah, it is. It absolutely is. Yeah, that's on here. Mm-hmm. 
I, I need to look up. Okay, so uh, for those uh, those familiar with the show, if there's an artist I haven't heard of, then I'm, I'm going to be lost. But, uh, oh, no, these are producers. Who the hell are the names? I need the voice names. This is what's killing me right here. I'm trying to, I'm, oh, I can almost read it. Well, this actually, is the Johnson fan. one, the Johnson one was in their own voices. Uh, oh, oh okay, so this is a, a cutout. They, they edited, yeah, it was, okay. a, it was a cutout. Back in the days when we were using a grease pencil and a razor blade to edit our tapes, mm -hmm, you know, before mm -hmm. digital. Now, you're probably too young to remember that, but uh, when I was in the Air Force producing uh, radio material for Armed Forces Radio, that's the way we edited. Yeah. Uh, you know, you mark mark what you want to take out with a grease pencil and put it on the editing block and cut it with a razor blade. Take yeah. it together. I mean, to be fair, that is how I learned to do film, but a year later, I think they stopped doing that entirely in favor of editing uh, digital because they said, yes. why are we teaching you this anymore? It was fun, though. Right. I mean, I, I liked it. I liked the physicality of it. I understand the practicality of not doing it anymore. But uh, although audio blows my mind, this is what I've never understood. I've never had to edit audio. Is it just is it like a scrubbing forward and getting to roughly the spot? How do you get to the exact spot? Sorry, folks, this is going to well, get no, real you nerdy. Can, you can uh, you could run the tape It's real to real. Mm hmm. And you would run the tape back and forth, and it was just like when you have your audio scanner on on, on the digital editing, mm -hmm. and you would hear it, and you could take the S off the end of a word. Okay. I mean, you could get that precise with it, and then you marked it very finely with a grease pencil right over the playback head, take it off, put it on the editing block, and slice it right there. And it was, it was very precise, wow. very uh, clumsy, but very precise. Okay, that makes sense. That makes sense. Okay. Uh, yeah, that's that's the thing that I, I've never been able to watch anybody edit old audio on tape. I know the process, but that's all right. You could get very that's that's fascinating. I guess it makes sense then why um, I don't now. Well, since you were you might be able to answer this then if you were in the in the Air Force uh, doing this kind of stuff. Um, I come from an Air Force family myself. And as a person who loves comedy movies, one of my favorites growing up, I probably shouldn't have been watching it because it was way too adult was Good Morning Vietnam. Uh, yeah. Were they did it, it, to your knowledge? Did Adrian Cronauer or anybody else actually run cut ups like that over the, over the air? Is that is there any truth to that? Because that movie, you know, I I got out after Korea and before Vietnam. Okay, okay. so uh, uh, I was not. Uh, I, I got out actually uh, in sixty three. Mm -hmm. Okay, so beginning of sixty three, and I think the Gulf of Tonkin, when Johnson got us full fledged into that war, came uh, the following year. Wow. Okay. Uh, yeah. Wasn't too long after Kennedy's assassination. Mm -hmm. So I can't really tell you that. I was pretty isolated. I mean, I traveled all over the country and uh, did interviews with uh, Air Force personnel, Minuteman uh, launch control officers in Montana and, mm -hmm. uh, you know, the B-58 people at uh, uh, the Air Force Base in Indiana, mm -hmm. <clears throat> named for Gus Grissom, Grissom Air Force Base. So I was all over the place, wow. but I was not in uh, any combat situation. And uh, the material that we produce, the uh, interviews and programs and features that we put together, then uh, we distributed some because I was at SAC headquarters in mm -hmm. Omaha, and we distributed some through our own facilities to both civilian and military media. And uh, then some went straight to the Armed Forces uh, Radio and Television Network. We did both. Okay. Okay. That makes sense. What, what, uh, well, then what got you into it? Were you, did you just, did you enlist knowing what you wanted to do? Were you drafted? What, what's, what, what was the situation that, what got you into? Well, you, this is a great, this is a great transition to my memoir, you know. Perfect. Let's talk Which about it. Has, has just been released mm -hmm. and it is my life story. 
And it, it follows really two tracks. I mean, if you're into comedy, there's an awful lot of funny stuff because my life has been pretty funny. Mm -hmm. uh, the way I got started in the business, uh, coming from an evangelical minister's home mm -hmm. um, and then moving into radio and television, it was quite a circuitous and fascinating route. Uh, you probably know that, uh, that, that my story and uh, my co-anchoring with Jessica Savage in Philadelphia was the basis for Will Ferrell and the movie Anchorman, uh, do, both Anchorman yeah. and Anchorman 2. Mm -hmm. uh, we were invited to the premiere and he uh, uh, said he appreciated the good nature that I had, the, the good humor I had shown uh, because my career was actually the opposite of Ron Burgundy's. I was a serious journalist, I was a serious newsman, but I do have a good sense of humor and I enjoy a good parody. Mm -hmm. So my memoir follows two tracks. Number one, it's the real life story of the real anchorman. Mm -hmm. And uh, and that's what Will Ferrell says. And the second track is, it is, uh, and the subtitle of the book is, A Journalist's Search for Truth, Anchored, A Journalist's Search for Truth. And so it is really uh, a tale of uh, trying to find my way out of a religious cocoon of absolute certainty, where I was taught that this is the truth, this is the way we know what is right, and as I got older and began to apply logic and reason and began to question some of the things I'd been taught as a child, it took me on a lifelong search for truth, which ultimately moved me into the field of journalism, where I felt I could look for answers without having to be uh, beholding to anybody's preconceived notions, ideas, beliefs, faiths. Yeah. Uh, so I, I was willing at a, a certain point in my life, at about the age of 24, 25, to give up the certainty of my faith for the honest search to find out what for me was real and true. And uh, so I, I consider myself today a man of faith, but it was an interesting and long journey to get from where I started mm -hmm. uh, to the kind of uh, faith that I have today. So the book follows two tracks. It's, it's, it's the story of the real Ron Burgundy and a fascinating life in journalism, uh, traveling all over the world and covering all kinds of uh, interesting and fascinating stories. But the subtext all the way through it is that journalist's search for truth. Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, it, well, and, uh, the book, please. Yes. I, I want to tell them where the book's available. It's yes. at, uh, you can get it at Amazon or any bookstore, but if you want a personally autographed copy, uh, just write for Anchored at our website, mortcrimspeaks.com. Uh, and that's the, that's the website, mortcrimspeaks.com. Crim with a C. Perfect. Yeah, please. I, well, I'm going to have to get it now because I, this, I, I, <laughs> I honestly need to know more. Uh, I, I, um, the the yours is maybe not an atypical story in terms of the faith search um but it does also make me think of uh, how i think a lot of people get into comedy to search for truth in a very in a sideways way in a, in a different way mm -hmm. I, I won't compare comedy and journalism because that would be that would be a false equivalency but there are similarities in terms of we all start searching for certain things at a certain point well not all of us some people just stick with what we're told but some well, of us, Jason, you know. I, I think I think if you're going to be a good journalist, first of all, you got to have a great sense of humor. Sure. Because uh, how do you deal with the tragedies and the ridiculousness of life and the 
the randomness and all of the things that we have to deal with that, that could really drive us down the emotional ladder, you know, into yeah. a deep depression. If we, if we, it's like doctors and, and first responders and other people who have to deal with so much tragedy and see so much, uh, humor is a wonderful way to shield yourself and to let some of this really hard, serious stuff just kind of bounce off of you. Otherwise it takes you down. For sure. For sure. Do you, do you think it's helped in your, um, we don't talk about faith that often. It just doesn't come up. But do you think it's helped in, 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 in that as well, in all parts of your life, humor? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I look back on the way I grew up with a great deal of affection, mm -hmm. loved my parents, respected them, respect the church I grew up in. Uh, I just, I, I had a hard time personally uh, accepting the Bible and many of its stories, you know, a man living in the belly of a fish for three days and, and those kind of, you know, Noah putting all of the living creatures on earth uh, into that big boat mm -hmm. for 40 days and nights. I had, I had a problem with some of that. And finally, I say in the book that once I stopped taking the Bible, literally, yeah. I was able to take it seriously. So, uh, you know, it was, uh, Yes, I, I look back uh, some of the things in my growing up and I tell about them in the book and they're very funny. They'll have you uh, rolling on the floor because, mm -hmm. you know, church, religion can be funny and we ought to be able to laugh at ourselves and and the journey that we've come through. And uh, if you can't laugh at yourself and at life and the the, uh, the silliness of so much of it, uh, you're going to be in for some emotional hard times. It's true. It's very true. Do you, uh, let's, I'd like to step back. So, all right, now getting a rough idea of your age now, knowing when you were in the, you were in the military during the Bilko era, every time anybody's 86. in the military. I, I was 86, um, uh -huh. the end of July, 31st of July. Yeah. So, so anytime anybody was, uh, was in the military roughly during the Bilko era, I always get excited because I love the Sergeant oh, yeah. Bilko show. It's my yeah. favorite show of all time. Love, just about. Love um, Phil Silvers. Such, yeah. a such a good show. Um, I, I, I'm always then, that always then makes me wonder what the first comedy vinyl you might have or would have heard. Were you raised on radio and then did you have any comedy records growing up or was that not a thing in the household? No, my dad had a wonderful sense of humor. Um, we had a lot of music. I know he had a collection of classical records. Um, he had a very broad range of interest. He was a saxophone player in addition to being a clergyman. Wow. He was also an artist and he played piano and, and a xylophone. Um, so music and art were a very big part of my growing up. But I, and I know he was a big fan of Red Skelton. Mm -hmm. uh, we used to listen to the Bob Hope show. I think that was on Saturday night. Uh, he loved Fibber McGee and Molly. He loved sure. the comedy on uh, radio in those days. Mm -hmm. You have to remember, I was 12 years old before I saw my first television set. Sure, yeah. And uh, so it was all radio in those days. And that's, that's how I started my career was in radio. Because when I started in 1953, I was 16 years old, turned 17 that summer and had this summer job at a radio station. There were a lot of big name announcers who just weren't sure that TV was going to last. Yeah. yeah, and they they were very hesitant to move out of radio uh, because they thought, well, it's you know even if it lasts, it's just radio and pictures. It's never going to take the place of uh, radio. Mm -hmm. And of course, it it changed radio. It didn't 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 eliminate radio, but it certainly changed everything about radio. Mm -hmm. uh, when you okay, so when you first, what were you doing when you first got into it? Then into radio. 
Well, I, w- I was between high school and college, mm-hmm. and I needed a summer job. And I'd gone around every station within 100 miles of where we lived in southeast Missouri at that time. Mm-hmm. And I would get the same answer from all these general managers, program managers at these small stations. You know, we don't hire anybody without experience. And I kept thinking, well, how in the world are you going to get experience if they don't hire you? Mm -hmm. So uh, I'm not going to blow the chapter because there's a very, very funny chapter in my book about my first radio job and uh, how I got it. And but it was in Blytheville, Arkansas at KLCN, 5000 watt daytime station. And uh, that was my first job. And I loved it. And so when I went to college in the fall, now I had three months of experience. So I could go into these station managers in Anderson, Indiana, where I uh, went to school and apply for a job. And I actually got a part-time broadcasting job and worked my way through college. Wow. I love it. Oh, that's so good. Um, These, uh, so the records that you've, you've mentioned so far are of an era are are of a very specific era. And they are, they are, uh, at least to you mentioned, well, other, other than, uh, uh, Newhart. The other two are of a period that I'm so interested in, which I already mentioned, which is some of the earliest audio satire committed to record. Yeah. Uh, and Kennedy seemed to open it up. And then obviously Nixon opened the floodgates because uh, no one trusted politics, period, anymore. And they're just like, screw it. Let's make as many records as we can about this guy. Yeah. Um, what what was your perspective, uh, uh, you know, being in broadcasting at the time, but also seeing all of a sudden it's it's now become a thing, not just accepted or not just like uh, permitted, but it's now become accepted and then eventually ex- expected that we're going to satirize politics to this heavy level. Yeah, um, <laughs> I wish we had a lot more humor today and and I don't mean vicious cutting sarcastic sure. humor but I wish we had uh, more people who could who could approach politics with a lighter touch mm-hmm. uh, God knows there's a lot of funny stuff going on in politics today and a lot of people who are uh, you know and they get cut up pretty bad by the nighttime uh, TV talk show hosts uh, but it's pretty biting it, it goes beyond uh, and I have to say, a lot of these politicians have earned that. Mm-hmm. But I wish, as a society, we could take a, a lighter, gentler touch, uh, as Bob Newhart did, as Bill Cosby did, mm-hmm. uh, certainly as Red Skelton and some of these uh, legends, you know, of, of their sure. own time period. Yeah, uh, take a light touch without uh, without sticking the bayonet into into your subject matter, but uh, get the humor out of it and get people to laugh with you. Uh, I think that would be healthier for society. That makes sense. I, I, I can I can see that. Um, wh- when these what what made you so interested in in those particular records you bought? I, I, I think uh, Newhart's an obvious one. He was just this funny guy, and he was a phenomenon. Nobody knew who the hell he was until he stood up on stage for the first time and they recorded it, which is insane that yeah. those are the, his first recordings ever, his first stand up gigs ever. Uh, but I am curious, like, what made you... In- I, I know that everybody owned a copy of The First Family, basically. It was the highest-selling record of all time at that point. Um, but what made you interested? You know, it's interesting. Uh, when I was in the Air Force, uh, it did a lot of interviews, and I did my own editing and uh, processing and putting these features together, which then got sent out for distribution. But I was fascinated by the whole editing process. Uh, and one of the things we would do if, uh, say, a, a, a colonel who had been a, a commander of a base or 
a, a general, a high-ranking general. They were having a go, going away party. Uh, my bosses would come to me and say, hey, Krim, uh, we want to do a comedy tape. Uh, I remember we took General uh, Tom Power, who was the commander of uh, Strategic Air Command, four-star general. Uh, he replaced LeMay, Kurt mm -hmm. LeMay. And uh, they said, G give us a comedy tape. <clears throat> so we had a lot of speeches that General Power had given. He's a very serious guy and uh, very dynamic speeches. And uh, so the captain that I worked for, uh, he, he said, just do anything you want to with it. Make it funny. So I set up an interview where I interviewed General Power. And of course, I had him saying ridiculous things and absolutely totally out of context things. And it was so much fun to do. And it got such a great response. And the general, they tell me, loved it. Um, and the people who attended his party loved it. Uh, but I was fascinated by that whole process of how you can edit things out of context. Now, we know today that's a very dangerous thing because sure. we... We see people taking uh, politicians and, and pulling their statements out of context, and in some extreme cases, even re-editing to, to put things together in a funny way. For sure. Uh, but I, I guess that piqued my interest in this whole process of, um, of recorded satire, because I was aware that th there was a creative process where you could do so much. Uh, and they did it in, in uh, For the Birds, where they had uh, put the music behind Barry Goldwater, and they took actual excerpt from, from his speeches, mm -hmm. uh, you know, Return to Proven Ways, uh, and they would have him repeating it over and over, and it was really, really funny. But I was fascinated by the technique that was used uh, to do that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. I totally get I I Honestly, this is not an uncommon story, because I feel like it's how I... Maybe not how I got into comedy, but like when I was roughly 14, our house got our first computer so we could digitize audio and I was doing exactly what your I have tape or we called my best friend for an hour, got him to say some embarrassing things and then cut that into exactly what you're talking about. <laughs> did exactly the same thing. It is this weird, yeah. I, I, it's, it's this interesting exploration of not just technique, but you learn how to tell a joke, you learn what's funny, all from manipulating the truth, which is what comedy is anyway. But it's interesting it that is. so many people can can learn it in the same exact way. Do those tapes still exist somewhere? That's what I want to know. I, I took a course in uh, comedy mm -hmm. at uh, Notre Dame University. I did some part-time work at Notre Dame. Uh, that's a strange, strange story that's also in my book about oh, how I okay. got to Notre Dame. But uh, I uh, took a course in comedy. And one of the, and it was a guy who was a very well-known comedian in the uh, South Bend area. And he was a very funny guy. He had a radio and TV show. And one of the first things he told us was, he said, comedy is often tragedy turned upside down. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And he said, the line between comedy and tragedy is so fine that sometimes you can't see the difference. Yeah. And I, that really stuck with me. And then, of course, as he proceeded uh, through the course to explain all of that to us, I, I understood what he was talking about. I mean, there's nothing inherently funny. In fact, it's tragic for a guy to be falling down drunk and lying out in the gutter. But comedians have been able to make comedy out of that. Yeah. Uh, you know, there's nothing funny about somebody crashing their car, but how many jokes have been, uh, you know, built on that premise? Right. 
it's interesting to I, I I always like when someone can appreciate it from the level that you're appreciating it, but then also does choose to do so much with their life that is very much. Um, I'm going to be the guy who does relay the bare truth, though, and and with as uh, little bias as possible. Did you? I won't say did you struggle with that, but was there ever? Was there? I don't know. Was there ever a desire to want to be? Uh, a funny guy. I, 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 you know, I, did you, have you ever tried out comedy before Detroiters, which we will definitely have to talk to talk about? You know, my colleagues would tell you that they've groaned many a night because <laughs> I am an in, incorrigible punster. Okay. Fair in enough. Fact, I, I had a, I had a button somebody gave me one time that said incorrigible punster do not encourage. <laughs> But, uh, you know, I, I love wordplays mm -hmm. and I guess, uh, you know, I was an English major and I, I guess my love of the language uh, and my, I had an uncle who was my dad's twin brother who was uh, eventually taught English and speech at the college level. And uh, he was uh, he was a jokester and a punster. He, he was a Henny Youngman type guy who liked to throw out the one liners, mm -hmm. but he also was a punster. And uh they say a pun is the lowest form of humor, but I, I disagree with that totally. I, think, I also uh, do. I also working disagree. with words and playing with words and getting the double entendres of, of words and putting them all together. Uh, I think it's uh, not patting myself on the back because there are many people who do it better than I do. But I think it's it's quite a skill to be able yeah. to do that. I think so, too. It's just a different way of thinking and then a different way of expressing yeah. that way of thinking. I, I, and you're I, right. I it's a different it. way of thinking. Uh, I hear something and, and my twisted mind <laughs> does something with it that a lot of people wouldn't do. <laughs> so, I mean, I think maybe in the case of being a journalist, um, especially being somebody who's, uh, you know, coming up in the age of being a literal face of facts, which, by the way, the more I think about it, the more pressure I, I've never wanted to be in journalism. And the more I think of it, I, that scares the crap out of me. I feel like then for you, comedy, you can tell me if I'm wrong, comedy might have been a very serious form of therapy once once those cameras are off, you know, mm -hmm. uh, rather than being Ron Burgundy on camera, you know, you, you get the opportunity once once they say cut to just roll with it a little bit. Well, uh, I tend to see, some people would tell me that I see the funny side of things that have no funny side, sure. but I, <laughs> I think you can always find something to, to smile about. Uh, I mean, life is, is inherently tragic. We, we get sick, we die, mm -hmm. we lose friends. And frankly, I'm at an age in life at 86 where all of my closest friends are now gone. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I feel very blessed to still be, uh, I played tennis this morning. I played tennis three days a week with a bunch of old guys who are, I'm now the second oldest in our group, but these guys are all in their seventies and eighties and, uh, get out there three days a week. And some days they're at the doctor or they're getting something fixed or mended or patched up, but we still do it. And as long as I can do it, I'll, I'll be grateful for it. Uh, mm -hmm. I find a lot of comedy in growing old. Mm -hmm. And my wife and I are both very good at uh, keeping each other smiling with the, some of our humor about, we have a sign at our front door said, beware, old people at play. <laughs> and we just, we try to keep, uh, you know, keep a perspective on life and how grateful we are that we still have the health that we have, uh, both of us. And uh, she just turned 80 last November, coming up on her 81st birthday, and mm -hmm. we're both We've both had cancer three times. We've both uh, got heart stents. And 
you know, but we're we're healthy for our age and for what we've been through. We are very healthy and we still lead active, productive lives. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, 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 humor doesn't hurt. I mean, humor's not going to humor is not going to help the, the health problems necessarily. But boy, oh boy, does it help you get through the rough I think matches. it does. You I think? think it does think? help okay. the health problem. Uh, I can't remember the guy's name. You may remember him, uh, who was very, very ill at one time, and he got some old, I believe it was Abbott and Costello movies, and he took them to his hotel room, and he was he was really in bad shape. Cousins, Norman Cousins. Oh, sure, okay. And he played these movies, and he said he would laugh and laugh, and he said he would get an hour's relief from pain mm -hmm. for every one of those movies he watched. And he credited his eventual recovery to humor and yeah. laughter. So I think it's more than hyperbole to say that laughter is, is a good medicine. I think yeah. it really is physically because it, it stimulates hormones and it, it does things to our overall uh, sense of well-being and our health that I think is very positive. I think that's fair. That's absolutely fair. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to redact what I said earlier that, that, you know what, it's a perfect, <laughs> it's a perfectly reasonable uh, thing to say. I mean, I, you know, I, I usually use it for mental therapy, but who's to say I'm not going to be in a position where I need it for uh, something more, you know? Mind, body, soul, they're all connected. Exactly right. I There's something I didn't know about you today. This is not comedy related, but anytime I have a guest on, I always pull up uh, their discography page, uh, Discogs page, just to see if they've been on a comedy record or any kind of record. I did not know that you were on a White Stripes song until today, which I had to listen to. Yes, uh, Elephant. Yeah. Um, I, I wish I'd known that that record was going to go platinum. I would have made a better deal with those guys. <laughs> <laughs> How did that come about? Is it just because they're Detroit kids and they, they just wanted the voice of their childhood on a record? Well, again, it's in the book. I'm not going to tell you okay. the whole story. If it's in the book, then let's not do but, all uh, of it. But... Yeah, Jack, uh, Jack White is from Detroit. Mm -hmm. And uh, he heard one of my commentaries. In fact, the one that's included on the uh, on the. Uh, song Little Acorns mm -hmm. and uh, ask if he could write a song around that commentary and use a, a portion of my voice uh, in the in the song mm -hmm. and so we worked out a deal and an arrangement and he did and the record went platinum and I have right outside my office door here I have a, a, a big platinum record uh, that says it sold I don't know, however many millions and has That's my crazy. name inscribed on it and that's the only time I'll ever get a record like that. <laughs> I love it. I'll tell you, I've had some people on who have walls of them, and uh, I don't care. I, I'll take the one, the one, and and t you yeah. know what? This is this is while this is not a cut up record, it is uh, it's bordering on something similar. They are taking this existing thing, but then composing a whole song around what is kind of an insane story about a lady who does. You know what? Mm -hmm. Whatever works. It's her her therapy at the at the yeah. hands of a squirrel, basically, which yeah. which is. Yeah. nuts but i love it well my commentaries were always uh positive inspiring uplifting that's what i committed myself to do because i thought there was so much out in the world and so much uh comment that was uh, a downer and yeah. i thought you know there's got to be a place on the airwaves for somebody to tell the good news and the positive stories because there's so much good that's going on around us it doesn't get told sure. so sure. when jack first called actually his agent called and said he wanted to do this. I called my son because my son knew Jack White because growing up in Detroit and he had played in a band with the, some of the guys that, that, oh. uh, that Jack hung around with. 
So I called my son and I said, uh, you're my go-to on this. I said, do you think uh, Jack White wants to do a parody? Do you think he wants to make fun of my commentaries? Right, and right. My son said, no, I know Jack. I don't, he said, I think he respects you. I don't think he would do that. So yeah. uh, it turned out, to, turned out to be a very serious thing that he did. Which it is, yeah. It is, yeah. but it is it is still interestingly a similar technique to but to go from from early cut up, which was almost always comedy, to like uh, for lack of a better term, mashup, which is kind mm-hmm. of what he does uh, to make. I mean, there's I've never not liked a Jack White song, so I, I was not surprised that I loved it. But he makes a very interesting, uplifting thing into this very deep song. Um, were you yeah, were you aware that he were you aware that he did the uh, music for Cold Mountain the movie? Yes, yes, because he's in it, right? Yeah. If I'm not mistaken, he's got a part in that movie. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah and yeah, I yeah. didn't I didn't realize that till somebody told me. I loved the movie, mm-hmm. and they said, "Well, you know, Jack White did the music for that." Mm-hmm. He's got uh, an, an insane range that I'm very. I'm not a mu- musician, but I'm still mm-hmm. jealous. I'm st- I'm still going to find myself being jealous. <laughs> um. Uh, again, there's, there is no record connection to this, but we have to at least, again, don't burn anything from the book that you don't want to, but a little bit about Anchorman wouldn't hurt if we talked a bit about it. Um, so it it is roughly, uh, based around, I mean, it is, it is, uh, the whole movie is about just sea change. It is about the next sea change after for for journalism anyway the maybe the big one would have been from radio to tv but then mm-hmm. from tv to 24 hour news which is not something that you went through but it is no. roughly based on parts of your career sort of well uh, what happened was uh in one of his interviews for anchorman 2 mm-hmm. uh will ferrell uh, was talking to rolling stone and he use my name. He said, we really got the idea from uh, uh, Mort Krim uh, and uh, Jessica Savage when they were anchoring in Philadelphia. Well, it turns out that Adam Mackey, his his co-writer and co-producer, they did both Anchorman movies together, mm-hmm. um, grew up in Philadelphia and had watched Jessica and me on television in real time when we were there. Mm-hmm. So uh, Will heard me on this after Jessica's tragic death. Uh, I was interviewed on the Lifetime channel uh, about her uh, for the movie that was of her life that was done called Golden Girl or Almost Golden. And uh, so uh, Will Ferrell told Adam, and I guess Adam read the interview in Rolling Stone, and he said, well, I watched Mort when I was growing up. And so they went back and got some old archival tapes of Jessica and me doing the news, and they decided that could be uh, the basis of a a co-anchor team and the tension that existed between them, one of the first male-female teams, uh, for a a comedy. Mm Mm-hmm. And uh, after it was revealed that, uh, that that I was the inspiration, if you could call it inspiration for that, uh, I got interviewed by everybody in the country. I was on Good Morning America. I was on Fox and Friends. I was on uh, Geraldo Rivero did 15 minutes with me. Uh, I did 15 minutes with Piers Morgan on CNN. And mm-hmm. uh, uh, I understand that Esquire Magazine Digital Edition in London had me on the cover. Uh, so there was just enormous interest in who is this real anchorman? You know, what's the story behind the satire? Yeah. So, uh, Will's office invited my wife, Rini and me to the premiere of Anchorman two in New York. And I met him then at the after party. One of the first things he said to me was Mort, I want to 
thank you for the good nature you've shown and the, the good humor in the way you've reacted to all this. Yeah. And I said, well, Will, let me tell you this. If you had billed this movie as a documentary, I'd be really pissed. <laughs> but I said, as a satire, I said, I, I always loved Ted Knight. I always loved, you know, the, the, the put on of the Anchorman. I said, I, I love good comedy and satire and parody. And that's what you guys have done. And I thought you did a good job. And uh, I'm happy to have made some small contribution to it. You know what? You're you're now making me think. Uh, you know, when I when I dig back on my favorite characters in sitcoms, uh, I'm I'm obsessed with a show called News Radio from the '90s. I don't know if you ever saw it, but mm -hmm. Phil Hartman plays the anchor on that show. Um, I'm I'm obsessed with uh, uh, characters who are usually jerks but have a heart of gold, and at least two of them. Again, Phil Hartman's character and oh. and Ted Knight on the Mary Tyler Moore Show are both journalists. What do you think? is the obsession with journalists who are maybe good deep down, but live this kind of bluster that, that they mm -hmm. have to have on camera or on mic. Yeah. Don't forget KCRP Cincinnati. Too. Of course. I mean, <laughs> of course. Well, I think, uh, you know, comedy and satire uh, parody are always predicated on an element of truth. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then you take that truth and you exaggerate the funniest parts or the most bizarre parts out to the nth degree. Uh, that's what Ted Knight did. Yeah, uh, for those of us who anchored the news, uh, yeah, you've got to have a pretty strong ego. And yes, there's a, some bluster and some more so than others. Uh, mm -hmm. I can think of a couple of anchor men over my career in the business that weren't that far away from Ron Burgundy. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But for the most part, uh, going across the country in all the major markets, uh, we were pretty serious people. Uh, uh, I have a master's in journalism from Northwestern University Medill School. Uh, and most of the people I know who did what I do uh, were serious journalists. They were writers. They were people who knew how to interview. They were people who took the business seriously. Sure. Nevertheless, there is uh, in the very fact that uh, we put makeup on and hairspray and went on camera every night, uh, there is enough there to, uh, if you take the funny parts and, and the weaknesses and the failings and the egos that would occasionally spin out of control, and you exaggerate all that out, you get a pretty good parody. You get a pretty good comedy out of that. And that's what they did in Anchorman. Agreed, one hundred percent. I, I, uh, yeah. It, 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 it. I don't know why it remains one of one of those things that I still will go back to. It is. It, I think it's an imperfect but also brilliant film at the same time. But which is good. If it were perfect, it would kind of be boring. Um, uh, do you, well, one you... of my one of my favorite one of my favorite movies is Airplane. Of course, of course. And you sometimes wonder, well, how did the airline pilots feel about that? <laughs> You know? yeah. But in every profession, you, you need to be able to laugh at yourself and, and to go along with the parody. You're just making me realize I've I have I have done Anchorman on stage and I we just did Airplane a few a few months ago, not on stage, but live via Zoom. I had to play Peter Graves' character, which is was the most uncomfortable series of laughs I've ever gotten in my life because he's such a creep. Part. It's so the good, but he's part. such a creep. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. And I'll never get close to his actual voice, which I mean, come on. What what a gorgeous voice. Um yeah. Did you you know what I'd actually like to know because this this relates to audio. There's uh you go back to the 20s, 30s, 40s, <clears throat> early movie actors and and sometimes people on the radio 
uh, would take elocution lessons, would learn the mid-Atlantic accent, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I'd like to know what sort of stuff you learned in school for broadcasting specifically to uh, to work your voice, unless this is your natural voice and you've always spoken like this, in which case, well done. <laughs> I'd like to think I have, but I've gone mm -hmm. back and listened. I have some old reel-to-reel -reel audio tapes when I first started in the business. I mean, they're 60 years old now, but they still play. Mm -hmm. uh, and I recognize how, how far I, <laughs> I went yeah. from, from where I started. I was blessed with a with a good voice. I think it's it's like uh, singers, like opera singers or anybody else. You have to start with the basic equipment, and and I was uh, was blessed with a good voice. But beyond that is the training, the discipline, the hard work to develop what you've got. Um, I grew up in the Midwest, um, kind of the lower Midwest, and my mother was from the South, mm -hmm. and so I grew up with. Uh, certain elements of accent that at that time, at the time I was in broadcasting, they wanted all that to be neutral. Yeah. yeah. Uh, you know, they didn't want ethnic names used. Mm -hmm. They wanted you, if you had an ethnic name, you, they insisted that you change it. That's sure. all changed. Now they're glad to have uh, ethnicity uh, represented. But uh, one of the things that uh, I had to overcome, uh, I'll give you a couple of examples. Um, I used to uh, G-E-T. Mm -hmm. When I grew up, it was get. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, it's get. Uh, J-U-S-T. I had a habit of saying just instead of just. Yeah. Little things like that that collectively uh, marked you as not uh, being very proficient with the language. Okay. Um, I will credit Notre Dame. I took a speech course there for a year, uh, two semesters. And uh, they would put us in a sound booth uh, and record. And we had to learn all about monothongs and diphthongs and the international alphabet. And, uh, and they would put us through these drills. Mm -hmm. And really, uh, you know, I, I, I discovered in that course that uh, Alabama really was not Alabama. Mm -hmm. And uh, so, yeah, and then I took speech courses. And... Uh, I, I think um, anybody who thinks that you grow up in any profession, you're just a natural. Now, some people are more natural than others. There are gifted, there are protégés in music who, who can just sit down and, and play a concerto, you know, with uh, little or no training. Uh, there's something, some people would say it's reincarnation. I don't know what it is. Right. But most people, even if they have a basic talent, have got to work hard and develop it and train and discipline in order to bring it to real fruition. And, and I certainly did. I, I didn't, I didn't uh, glide into my profession easily. Yeah, right. That's, yeah, this, this is one of those things that I, I do wonder now what, because again, I've not been to journalism school. I mm. would like to, and I just heard it, I said, Ben, I don't, you know now, I listen to too many Canadian podcasts. My brain thinks I should have said bean, but we don't say bean here. Um, but long story short, uh, I've had to overthink my voice just from watching so much television, being ex being exposed to people who had the quote-unquote neutral accent. Um, mm. So I never had to take that in school, and I do wonder if it makes you um, sort of uh, overthink how you speak uh, in a bad way or, or if it's in a good way. Well, I it, uh, I, I think it's like, uh, I'm playing tennis and, and at 86, I'm still learning. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think in any sport, you stop learning, you, you stop. Yeah. Uh, and I've been working on my, uh, backswing. 
And you find when you first try to change a bad habit, mm -hmm. it's very awkward and you overthink it and you're focusing on it and you're concentrating on it. But if you do it enough to where it becomes a part of you, mm -hmm. then you stop thinking about it. Then you just do it. And I think it was that way uh, with some of my uh, speech work. Uh, yeah, you have to, as long as I had to focus and think about how I was pronouncing certain words, it really felt awkward. Yeah. But yeah. when you do it often enough and long enough until it becomes a natural part of your vocabulary and how you speak, then you don't think about it anymore. Right. You know, maybe you know, I'm going to ask you a very weird question that nobody would have expected me to ask, and I didn't expect myself to ask. My dad <laughs> is from just across the river from St. Louis, so he's from O'Fallon, Illinois. That's uh -huh. where he grew up. But I've heard people who grew up, and it's, this is what's throwing me, the Smothers Brothers also do this, and they grew up in California. They were California boys. Mm -hmm. But he says Washington to this day, and I don't know if this is generational or locational. Did you grow up saying Washington? I, um, my wife's mother would say I'm going to wash the clothes. Yep, yep. Um, she was from Southern Illinois. Yeah. Um, I don't remember that. I remember my mother would say Alpel for apple, Alpel. Really? Would, but yeah. And, uh, uh, another one that I heard my mother-in-law say was, uh, arthritis. I have arthritis. Arthritis. Okay. Yeah. Uh, I think a lot of those things have to do with, uh, the home and your parents. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. more than they have to do with, uh, you know, and the society in, in which you grow up. But I think the home environment is is uh, definitive and, and determinative in uh, speech patterns and pronunciations initially. And then yeah. you go and you, if you want to, you can change some of those. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. I, I hadn't thought about that as the, maybe the simplest explanation that it could just mm -hmm. very well be you know, based, based in the home. Cause my grandmother most definitely said Warsh, uh, well, you, you take somebody who, um, uh, whose parents immigrated mm -hmm. to this country, uh, and the, the child grows up perhaps uh, bilingual, uh, mm -hmm. learning English, but also influenced by, uh, their accents very often, uh, particularly when they're very young will reflect the accents of their parents. Uh, mm -hmm. So I think that has more of an influence on those things than the culture at large, because you spend more time in your home and with your family. Yeah. Um, I, I would like to skip back just for a second to uh, the couple records that you mentioned. Did you, of the other ones that you that you had, did you have any other like political satire records or did you, did you have more stand-ups? Like what kind of stuff were you mm -hmm. listening to? can't recall any but we're talking a lot of years sure 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 that's fair yeah i i could i could sit and list off a giant list but who's to say like you know you got shelly berman you've got you know uh where, where... shelly berman i i remember i mean a lot of them if you call them off i might recall them but just sure. uh... do you uh, what was your uh did you buy these records for just yourself or were you a party record person? Did you have parties where you play records? Well, I'll let you in on a secret. I didn't buy any of them because I was in radio you at that radio. time. And what they all came in as uh, freebies yep. because all these record companies wanted you to play them on the air. Fair so enough. Fair I think enough. my entire vinyl collection was, uh, <laughs> you know, promotional. 
You know, I am right now. I am staying in a house that uh, my late father-in-law's house, and I'm pretty sure all of his records were the same because he was a Detroit and a DJ, and then a DJ everywhere else because he had to be. But um, yeah. Uh, yeah, that's really funny. Okay, I, I always why why would I forget that? Most of the records <laughs> I own, I bought with holes punched in them because they cost me nothing. Why would I? Yeah. You know, uh, I'm I'm a terrible collector, by the way. I don't buy. The, I don't care about the condition. Um, I would like to briefly talk about Detroiters, which uh, if only because um, I was watching the show with my wife, basically in preparation to come out to, and move to Detroit, the, the Detroit area. I'm like, you know what? Let me get let me get some culture. From what I understand, the show is a very richly, very Detroit show, very legitimate. And I watch it with my wife and she's like, wow, this is like everything was hitting home with her. And she, the second yeah. you came on screen, she's like, did they really have Mort Krim on the show? And I'm like, I'm like, honey, please walk me through because I wasn't familiar with your career, so I had to have her walk me through every explanation. And um, I mean, quickly, you become one of my favorite parts of the show because of the things that they have you say and the commitment with which you say them. You know, you've got a long broadcasting career that gives you the ability to make things sound funny just by taking them as seriously as possible. Yeah, I'd like thanks. to know just how that felt. Uh, when they first asked you to do the show, because this is not coming from people who like Anchorman. This is coming from people who legitimately grew up watching you. They, uh, I, I think the uh, people, uh, the Detroit portion of the people uh, were rather surprised that I was willing to take that on. But again, you know by now what my philosophy is. Uh, mm -hmm. Got to be able to laugh at ourselves. Mm -hmm. and, uh, so there were a couple of things they wrote for me that I vetoed. Uh, simply because they were so crude. I said, you know, you've got to remember, <laughs> you, you've, you're, you're presenting me as Mort Krim. You're not presenting me as some fictional character. Sure. So I said, I'll, I'll be funny and I'll be, uh, uh, I'll, I'll be irreverent, certainly up to a point, but you can't have me say things that would be so contrary to not only who I am, but who I'm perceived to be. Yeah. And uh, the writers and the producers were very, very understanding of that. And they said, look, we don't want you to do anything that's going to, uh, to not be comfortable. So the stuff we did was, uh, it was, it was cutting and it was hard edge. And, mm -hmm. and I think it, uh, you know, I think it was fun to do. Yeah. Yeah. Pe people need to watch that show. I, I will. Uh, I, it's, it's one of those that not only people who love Detroit. Again, I am not as familiar with Detroit. You don't need to be to think that this show deserves to keep going. And if it does, I mean, they'll bring more back. Come on, folks. Let's get well, a season three. All of those uh, vignettes that I did uh, where I show up on the TV in the bar mm -hmm. uh, were fun. The most fun of all was the one where I had the featured role for the whole it's such a, good show. It's such a I, before you and I got on, I was quoting it to my wife. Um, that's yeah. that's what I spent most of the day doing. Ah, <laughs> uh, just the whole I don't want to give anything away, but you guys should just watch the episode, but there's there's a whole string where he's supposed to be saying ISIS and they have to dub it over and say prices. And I just love that <laughs> it's uh it's not hard to remember the name of that episode. It's called Mort. That is the name of the episode. Ah, <laughs> uh, yeah. It's it's a friggin' delight. And it's again, it's one of those things that is not expected. You just we you expect you're just gonna be a running gag on the TV the whole time. Mm. And I don't normally comment on the commercials. Ah, boy, but that was really, really bad. Uh, so, so <laughs> funny. My goodness gracious. Um, 
do you uh let's let's talk a little bit because uh in your original email back to me like a lot of the shows that you enjoy are shows that i also absolutely happen to love um that i grew up with like cheers and fraser golden girls uh the office to a later you also love Shit's creek which i appreciate is uh yeah. oh, is there yeah. anybody right any show or any comedian right now that tickles your brain in a particular way you know, we've been watching so many comedies, and I and I probably have the dialogue to Cheers and Frasier memorized at this point. Sure. I mean, I I still like to watch them. Uh, my bedtime habit, and my wife usually goes to sleep before I do, so I put on my headsets and uh, so that I can get the sound and watch. Uh, and I'll watch. I watched an episode of Cheers last night. Mm-hmm. Uh, it'll either be uh, I like Golden Girls a lot. Yeah. I think that is one of the most classic shows ever written and the uh, ensemble cast that they put together with those three women is just uh, incredible. Um, right now, we have kind of switched over uh, in our series. We, we watched a lot of Schitt's Creek. Uh, I started watching and have watched several episodes of one called Afterlife, okay. uh, which is really good. It's serious drama, but it got some funny moments in it as, as good dramas always do. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we've started watching The Crown. Oh, okay, sure. Uh, I play tennis with a with a Brit, and uh, I asked him. I said, "Is what do you think of The Crown?" He said, "Oh, I've watched every one, all seasons." And he said, wow. "Every episode." He said, "It's beautifully done," and he said, "As far as I'm concerned, it's pretty authentic." So yeah. we're just we've just finished episode three of season one, mm-hmm. and so. Uh, it's got some humor in it, but it's definitely a, a serious drama. Sure. So at the moment, I'm kind of going back and forth between uh, my old standbys of uh, Cheers and Frasier and then interspersing some of these more serious dramas. Yeah. You know, that's it's a good way to mix it up. I will say Cheers is one of, uh, I wish I wish it wasn't uh, in disrepair right now. I am a grown man who plays with Lego bricks, but I have rebuilt i've built the cheers bar out of lego which took way too long and too much money wow. uh and it is you have, you have you have norm permanently <laughs> i do there. oh yes believe me <laughs> i've got everybody in their right position and then when i ran out of characters i just threw in other lego people like a guy in a corn cob outfit yeah. uh just random things like that and well, they'd I, always they'll always <laughs> have one or two people sitting around the bar that are uh, you know extras Yes. Oh, I'm obsessed with with watching. I'm obsessed with extras. I have a whole podcast about it, but I love watching for when they've clearly brought somebody back. Like that must have been for some people like a huge gig. Like they're not making a lot of money, but they're mm-hmm. getting brought back every week and every week and every week. And they all you see names. is their back or their yep. side. But yeah, hundred percent. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and my Lego set is signed by James Burroughs. I will say that he did oh. sign a brick for me because yeah. um, I wouldn't leave him alone. I think is why he did it. He and his brother are two of the producers of that, aren't they? Yes. Yeah. 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 And he produced. He he directed. Well, like he always does, he directed the first episode so that he can pull a check for every subsequent episode. Um, yeah. Smart man. Um, yeah. He's uh, he was an interesting interview. Um, boy, oh boy. Uh, okay. Well, here's the thing. Every other question I want to ask you is probably answered in your book. So if you would one more time, tell people the name of the book and where they can find it, where they can find you. The name of the book is Anchored, A Journalist Search for Truth, available at Amazon, as they say in the commercials, and all fine bookstores. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if you'd like a personally autographed copy, you can order it from my website, and that's mortcrimspeaks.com. Now, people ask me, why isn't it just mortcrim.com? Right. Simple answer to that. I had a production company, and when I sold the company, I mm-hmm. sold the name. 
Oh, wow. So, <laughs> wow. That, that is the name to the, to the website. So we had to add speaks because I do a lot of public speaking and okay. uh, spent my career, of course, speaking on television. So it's mortcrimspeaks.com and crim is C-R-I-M. So get your order in today. I'll be signing the book and get it out to you the next day. Now, I want to make sure, now I am following you on Twitter, but am, I hope I'm, I'm following actual you. So it mm -hmm. is Krim Mort, at Krim Mort. Is that your actual? That's right. Okay, good. I want yeah. to make sure that that is actually you. I don't use Twitter a lot, but sure. I'm, I'm on there and I uh, check things out occasionally. And the mm -hmm. same with Instagram. I do a lot more on Facebook. Oh, okay. All right. So people should also find you mm -hmm. on Facebook if they want to stalk Mort Krim. Sure. Um. <laughs> and Mort Krim Journalist is my public page. Okay. But they can go on either one, uh, Mort Krim or Mort Krim Journalist. Delightful. Well, thank you for talking with me. I know that we didn't stick totally to the vinyl comedy thing, but the thing is you are, your interests are, uh, do align with mine because I am, again, fascinated. I, I own 20 copies of The First Family and I'm still not sure why. I'm obsessed with this <laughs> era of, com of comedy records. And that's a particularly good one. Yeah, um, it is. Yeah. It holds up. Like, even if you didn't, I didn't grow up with Kennedy as my president. However, it still holds up comedically. It's a good record. Um, yeah. Von Meter was quite a talent. He was oh, quite a talent. He was yeah. brilliant. Um, I will tell people, if you haven't heard it, listen to my interview with his widow, Sheila Meter Stratton, which was oh. one of my favorite interviews of all time. Sweet woman. And... Yeah has a lot to say. She even played me a record that had never been released of his over the phone. I could barely hear it, but it was a, it was a lot of fun. There's a lot of unreleased Vaughn meter out there. Um, uh, well, Mort, thank you again very much. Jason, it has been fun. Thank you. Thank you guys for listening. And as always, have a good thing. Comedy on Vinyl is a production of Stolen Dress Entertainment. It is produced by Mike Warden and is hosted and edited by Jason Klom. Our theme song was composed and performed by Richard Levinson. You can email us at podcast at comedyonvinyl.com. You can also send snail mail to Stolen Dress Entertainment, P.O. Box 805, Burbank, California, 91503. Subscribe to Comedy on Vinyl on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and anywhere else you can find podcasts. Give us a five-star rating and write us a review. It helps. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Comedy on Vinyl, or find everything in one place at ComedyOnVinyl.com. A major portion of Comedy on Vinyl has been underwritten by Stand Up Records. Please visit StandUpRecords.com for all your comedy needs and tune in to the new Stand Up Records channel available on the Roku, where you can also find select episodes of this podcast. Visit StolenDress.com to listen to our other podcasts, watch videos, and imbibe freely of our multimedia content going back 15-plus years. Stolen Dress Entertainment. Hey, it's my turn. Ah!